All right. Well, um, I guess the kiddos are already gone there. So um, if you have your Bibles, open up to the Old Testament. And we're going to be in a, a little book, um, one of the lesser known books probably uh, of the Bible. It's called Hosea. Uh, he's one of, the, one of the minor prophets, Hosea. We're going to be looking at a passage, really chapter 1 through the verse first of chapter 2 tonight. We'll get that here in just a, in a moment. So um, you're probably familiar with this song. I just want to read a, a line in this song, America the Beautiful. And it says this, O beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. You know, there is no doubt that this nation, since its founding, has had God's hand of grace upon it. Um, the, the country that we live in is, is really incredible. Um, even, even how we became a country is incredible. Uh, the fact that we won uh, the Revolutionary War, a war that we never should have won, is incredible. Um, the things that we have done, the, adver- the adversity that we over- we've overcome, and, and the, the, the prosperity that we have as a nation, we're probably one of the most prosperous nations maybe that's ever existed on the face of the earth, and it's all because of God's goodness and God's grace. The Bible tells us he is the one that makes nations rise, but also the ones that makes nations fall. Now, because of our amazing prosperity as a nation, and because of our founding, and a lot of the things um, um, that have to do with our founding, there's been a lot of people throughout the, um, the, de- the, the recent decades especially that have um, compared the United States to the, the Israel that we, we read about in Scripture, not so much the one that's there today, but really the, the Israel that was founded you know, centuries and centuries ago. And there really are some interesting comparisons when you think about America and Israel um, because God's hand was obviously at work in both nations. Both nations um, claimed to, to follow the one true God, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Both nations have their laws that, were, that are based upon God's holy word. Um, I'm not sure if you know that, but even our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all those things that go way back to our, our founding, very, very much came out of Scripture. And those things, and then a whole bunch more, there's a whole bunch of amazing comparisons between Israel of old and the United States. Now, some people, because of that, have... There's this, I guess, the theological thought that, that America has replaced Israel in God's overall plan, which is completely false, as we'll see today. Israel is still is God's chosen nation, chosen people, as we are as Christians. But there are some really unique comparisons when it comes to America and Israel of, whole, of old. And what's cool about that is that when we get in Old Testament books, sometimes it can be hard to read these and go... What in the world does this have to do with us? You know, I mean, we're talking about stuff that was written like 3,000 years ago to a nation that's in the, in the far, you know, Middle East, and, and what does this have to do with us? But because of the unique comparisons between them and us, it really gives us a, a unique um, ability to bring some application for our lives, even today in 2022, that are pretty cool, and we'll see that as we get into this book here in Hosea. So let's go ahead and read the chapter here, Hosea chapter 1. As you see, it'll be a very interesting story. Maybe you've never heard it, but it's one of the most unique stories in all of Scripture. So it says this, starting in verse 1. 
The Lord gave this message to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, I love those names, was king of Israel. Starting in verse 2, when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. And this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. And so Hosea married Gomer, um, the, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, name the child Jezreel, for I'm, for I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. And soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name your daughter Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel and forgive them, but I will show love to the people of Judah. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses or charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. In verse 8, after Gomer had, Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son, and the Lord said, named him Lo-Ami, not my people, for Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. Yet the time will come, here's the good news in verse 10, when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. And then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves. They will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. And in that day, you will call your brothers Ami, my people, and your sisters Ruhamah, the ones I love. Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father God, thank you so much for your word um, and just for the instruction that it gives us today. God, I pray that you would give us application. Um, most importantly, God, I pray that you would speak. Um, God, my words have no influence and no power, God, but it's, it's through your word and through your Holy Spirit speaking through me, God, that, that lives are changed, hearts are touched, and minds um, are, are worked in, God. So I just pray that you would reign in our hearts and minds and reign in this service and let it be all to your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, interesting story, right? Um, Who's ever heard of that? Who's ever read that in Scripture? So maybe not a ton of us, right? So this is very interesting. Now, who was Hosea? Hosea was a prophet. Essentially, he was a messenger of God um, at the time um, when Israel and Judah were split. So um, under King David, under King Solomon, there were one nation. After Solomon died, the nation was split. You had a lower kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah, who had its own kings. The northern kingdom of Israel, which also had their king. This was about from 755 B.C. to 715 B.C. when, when Hosea was there as the prophet. Now, he was a contemporary of Isaiah, which is probably a little more um, well-known prophet because he has a huge book, like 60-some chapters in the Old Testament, but he was the prophet in um, Judah while Hosea was the prophet there up north. Now, Hosea means, his, la- his name literally means to save or to deliver, and had the nation of Israel heeded the warning of his message um, and turned from their evil, they would have not uh, ended up the way that they did, as we will see here. However, as Hosea warned, the destruction of Israel that he prophesied in this book ultimately occurred in 722 BC when the Assyrian Empire came in and destroyed them. Now, before we get into our actual 
story here in chapter 1, that this story of Hosea and his wife, there's some context needed to really make this story make sense. And so uh, what I want to do is just take a few minutes and give you a little bit of backstory on the situation in Israel. So Israel at this time, again, we're talking about 755 BC or so in this particular time frame. Israel at this time was incredibly wealthy, um, incredibly prosperous, and their, their military was incredibly powerful. And you can read about them in 2 Kings chapter 14. And about this time, they actually were at war with the lower kingdom of Judah, and they had pretty much conquered Judah. They had, they had ransacked the city of Jerusalem. They had stolen gold and treasures from the temple. They had pillaged the, the palace and had take, took all the wealth from it and, t- and brought it back to them. They expanded their lands to the east and to the west, and they were very, very prosperous. However, the problem was, was that their wealth um, and their success and their comfort caused them a lot of trouble. Um, We can read in Hosea chapter 10, God told Israel this, how prosperous Israel is, a a luxurious, excuse me, a luxuriant vine loaded with fruit, but the richer the people get, the more pagan altars they build, the more beautiful their harvests, the more beautiful their sacred pillars. And so what was happening is, 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 is as Israel got richer and richer and more powerful and more comfortable, their hearts became further and further and further away from God. And as a result of that, the evil and the sin that they were doing became greater and greater. And because of this, they, they had placed leaders over their nation that were also evil. The particular one during this time was Jeroboam II, who was king, and, and he was a man that did incredible evil. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 14, in verse 24, this is what the Bible says about the king that was reigning at this time in Israel. It said that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to turn from the sins that, that Jeroboam son of Nebat, his namesake, um, had led Israel to commit, which was essentially pagan worship. They were worshiping false gods. They were doing all kinds of evil rituals to these false gods. People were being sacrificed to these false gods. I mean, just some awful, awful atrocities that were going on in this nation. And the the king not only allowed this, but he really um, pushed this in the country. Um, Ultimately, because of the leadership of Israel's kings, they were conquered, as we'll see, right? But it wasn't just their leadership that was the, the, like their political leadership. It was also their religious leaders that were very corrupt. Um, we can read um, about how um, in hate, like Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us that there was no faithfulness, no kindness, and no knowledge of God in the land. See, the, the job of the religious leaders, the, the priests at the time, was to lead the people, not only in right worship to God, but to teach the people God's word, but also to tell the people what God expected, to, to, to remind them of the blessing that came with obedience to God, but also the problems that came with disobedience um, and, and the, the discipline that God's word said comes when a nation walks away from the Lord. And it's interesting in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, my people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Many translations, probably more literal translations, says because of a lack of knowledge of God. So the people were being destroyed because they didn't know the Lord. Well, whose job was it to teach them about the Lord, these, these religious leaders? And so listen to verse 8 of Hosea chapter 4. It says, when the people brought their sin offerings, the priests got fed. And so the priests were glad when the people sinned. And so these religious leaders who were supposed to be worshiping God and having the people lead them in worshiping God were glad when the people sinned because it made them rich. 
And so they're rich and they're comfortable off of the people. And the result of this was that the people essentially chose to follow the leader and they turned their backs on God and followed the pagan gods of the surrounding nations instead. And in chapter 4, it tells us this about the people there in Israel. Verses 12 and 13 of Hosea chapter 4 says that um, this is what God is speaking about these people. They ask a piece of wood for advice. Meaning they would carve a, a picture of some made-up God and then they would talk to that piece of wood that they had just carved to ask them for advice. I know it sounds crazy, but people still do it to this day. Um, it says that then they, they, they think they can... They think a stick can tell them the future, right? Um, longing after idols has made them foolish. They have played the prostitutes, serving other gods and deserting their god. They offer sacrifices to idols on the mountaintops. They, they go up into the hills to burn incense in the pleasant shade of the oaks and poplars and, and terebinth trees. Sounds good, right? Except for the last part of this verse that says, that is why your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters commit adultery because these poplars and oaks and terebinth trees were actually a place of worship, these high places where they would worship the goddess Ashtoreth. And as I told you a few weeks back, this goddess Ashtoreth was the god of sex. And so they would go to these places, and these were like giant orgies that were happening in these places, right? And this was passing down to their children. And obviously in God's sight, for a people that were supposed to be his, this was a, an atrocity of, of the highest evil, right? And so because of this was kind of the, the picture, this was the situation that was going on in Israel. And so the rest of Hosea really is this proclamation from God to the nation of Israel about what's about to happen. And so because of their sin, God warns them through the mouth of the prophet Hosea, starting in chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, Bring these charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. I know, again, that sounds like crazy, like, we say that in church, you know? But, But here's the picture, right? So the Old Testament gives this picture like we have God in heaven who is the essential spiritual husband to his people, the nation of Israel. So Israel pictured them as God's wife, not in some weird way, but just the, the, this relationship image, right? So the wife of God is the nation of Israel, and God is their husband, right? And so essentially what God was saying is because of their going after these idols and doing all of these evils and sitting in this way, they had completely turned their backs on their husband and entered into like an adulterous relationship, and this was kind of going on. And because of that, God tells them um, in in verse 9 through 13 of Hosea chapter 2 this, Again, remember, they were mighty, they were wealthy, they were prosperous. But he says this, But now I will take back the ripened grain and the new wine I generously provided each harvest season. I will take away the wool and linen clothing I gave her to cover her nakedness. I will strip her naked in public while all her lovers look on. No one will be able to rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to her annual festivals, her new moon celebrations, her Sabbath days, all of her appointed festivals. I will destroy her grapevines and fig trees, things that she claims her lovers gave her. I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals will come and eat their fruit. I will punish her for all those times where she burnt incense to her images of Baal, which was another false god, uh, when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers but forgot all about me, says the Lord. So he uses this, this picture of a human relationship to kind of explain what was going on between Israel and their God, right? Now you get to chapter 8 of Hosea, 
verses 1 through 4, and it says this, Sound the alarm. The enemy descends like an eagle on the people of the Lord, for they have broken my covenant and have revolted against my law. Now Israel pleads with me, help us, for you are our God. But it's too late. Verse 3 says, The people of Israel have rejected what is good, and now their enemies will chase after them. The people have appointed kings without my consent and princes without my approval by making idols for themselves from their silver and gold. They have, bought, they have brought about their own destruction. So this was the situation in Israel. And this is the proclamation that God had made through the prophet Isaiah. And it sounds awful, right? Like, why would God do something like that? But here's what you need to understand. This prophecy came like 20-some years before it actually took place. In fact, these words from Hosea were God's warning to the people, and he gave them like two decades to turn back to him. And had they turned back, God would have relented. I, I'm sure of it because of the book of Jonah, which is another one of the prophets in the Old Testament where he was supposed to prophesy destruction to a, the nation of Nineveh, which was Assyria. These people that were evil, like evil, evil. Like they would like kill people and then skin them alive and skin them and then they put like their skins on their walls. I mean, we're talking about evil, evil people. Jonah goes and preaches to them. They, from the oldest to the young, from the greatest to the least, they get on their faces before the Lord and repent and God relents from his anger and doesn't judge them. Interesting, right? So don't you think if Israel would have done the same thing, God would have relented in the exact same way? I absolutely believe that. However, they, they didn't. Now, what's really interesting about this book and this man Hosea, was that he not only spoke God's word with his mouth, as we see in our passage today, God called him to live out this proclamation as an illustration in his life. So the illustration of Hosea's life to the people, we, start, we see starting in verse 2, when, when God told him to go marry a prostitute. I mean, God's asked, God asks us to do some crazy things, but to go marry a prostitute is got to be one of the craziest, right? So why would God do that? I mean, now literally this means a, a wife who will prove herself to be unfaithful. And, and clearly, as we see, see in here, it, says, it seems to say that this wife's going to have illegitimate children as well. I mean, how about that request, fellas? What would you say to God if, if God came to tell you that? Looking for a wife? Go over there to that house, you know? Kind of a crazy one. But, but all of this was for a, a purpose. And the purpose was to a, a picture illustration of what Israel was doing to their God. And if you think about this, what an incredible witnessing tool this had to have been for Hosea. Because as Hosea was sitting down on a corner talking to his buddies, and his buddies saw the woman that he was with, can you imagine what they said to him? What are you doing? There's some honorable women in Israel. Why in the world would you choose her? Don't, don't you know what she's out doing in the streets? Don't you know who, who, she, she's not being faithful to you, Hosea? And guess what this gave him the opportunity to do? Yeah, and let me tell you what this is all about, right? So Hosea listens, and, and he's obedient. In verse 3, he goes and marries a woman named Gomer. I, maybe some of you are, are too young for this, but who remembers Gomer Pyle, USMC? 
And that's all I could think of whenever I saw this name. Like, what an awful name for a girl. I mean, I think the only worst one in the Bible is Dorcas. Maybe you've read that, but there's a woman named Dorcas in the Bible too, which is kind of interesting. Some interesting names. But he, he goes and he marries this prostitute named Gilmer. And in verse 4, um, they have a son, um, clearly his son, because the Lord says, name your son Jezreel. Now, this Jezreel was actually a place that um, Israel had some history with. So you can read about this back in 2 Kings chapter 9, um, where he Elisha the prophet anointed Jehu as king of Israel and told him that he wanted to go, he was supposed to go destroy Ahab's family because they were just extremely, extremely evil, right? And in 2 Kings chapter um, 10, in verse 6, um, Jehu did this and um, he went and, 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 he, and he killed all 70 of Ahab's children, which again seems horrible, but he didn't stop there. He also murdered 42 relatives of King Ahaziah of Judah, which was one of the heirs of King David. And and for this, God was saying, look, you're going to be judged for this. And the way they're judged, as you can see in verse 5 specifically, is that um, they they would lose their independence, their military power was going to be gone, and essentially they were going to be destroyed in a similar manner um, that they had done these atrocities to these people, of the, the sons of, of King Ahaziah. And so verse 6 then, um, Gomer has another daughter and names her Lo-Ruhamah. Lo means not, and meaning not loved or no sympathy towards. And so the idea here is, is not so much about a feeling of love, but rather the way God expresses the love towards his people. And the idea here was that God was saying, I'm no longer going to show my love to Israel like I have in the past. I'm no longer going to forgive. I'm no longer going to look past her sins and her atrocities. You know, one of the maybe underappreciated verses in the whole Bible is in Psalm 103 and verse 10 that tells us that God does not punish for us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with this as we deserve. And I don't know about you, but I know me. And I know that I do a lot of dumb things, and I am grateful that God doesn't zap me for every stupid thing that I do. Because uh, I, I, I think I'd be in trouble. How about you? Yeah. Well, God had overlooked a lot of atrocities in Israel's past. I mean, a lot of sin for, for literally a couple centuries now, a couple hundred years of evil, and he says the time is up. Now, we get to verse 7, and God says there that I'm going to destroy you, no longer going to forgive you, no longer going to show you love, but I will show my love to the people of Judah, where he goes on and says, I'm going to, I, I, will, I will flee them from their enemies, not with weapons or with armies or with horses and charioteers, but by my power, says the Lord. And just listen to this in 2 Kings chapter 19. It says this, this came into reality a few decades later when, an arm, when, when the army of Assyria came against them with a vast army, and this is in 2 Kings 19. However, at the right time when Judah thought they would receive the same fate as their northern cousins of Israel that they did a few years earlier when Syria destroyed them, and well, here's what happened. And instead of Assyria taking over Judah, God sent an angel of the Lord that went out and killed like 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and destroyed them right in front of the nation of Israel. I mean, it's an incredible miracle, and they, they turned around with their tail between the legs and left, and that's kind of what this passage is talking about. Not a lot to do with what we're talking about today, but just just for some context, right? But then you get down to verses 8 and 9, and it says that, that Gomer had a second son, a third child, and named him Lo-Ami, which means, again, that Lo meaning not, my people. 
Um, Israel had been in, in a covenant relationship with God at this point for like a thousand years, but, but now God was saying to this generation at least, my covenant with you is over. Um, you're no longer my people. And this is kind of the idea that just because they had Jewish blood didn't mean they were God's people. Um, in Romans chapter 2, and verses tw- like verse 28 and 29, it talks about just because you have Jewish blood doesn't make you God's people, right? And, and so there, the, this relationship that God had with Israel wasn't just about a bloodline. It was about a spiritual connection between him as their God and them serving him as that. And these people hadn't done that. So God was said that the covenant with this generation at least was, was over. And the result, in 2 Kings chapter 17, um, in Zeril, Assyria invades. Uh, they kill many people. They took the people of Israel prisoners and, and slaves back to their land. It was an awful thing. And in fact, you can read about this in Amos chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It kind of gives us the idea of the devastating way this took place. The sovereign Lord has sworn this by his holiness, Amos says. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. You will be led out through the ruins on the wall. You will be thrown from your fortresses, says the Lord. I mean, can you imagine that? Not only are they destroyed, but they have hooks going through their noses. Other passages talk about how they have hooks in their jaws and they're led away with ropes. Their women were given in marriage to um, Assyrian people. Then they were all mixed and everything else. And it was just an awful, awful situation. And to this day, they're known as the ten lost tribes of Israel because they've never regained themselves as a nation, as a people. Their, Their heritage essentially has been lost, right? Now, I'm sure you're thinking maybe up to this point, what a depressing message. Like, wow, this doesn't sound like a very encouraging thing. What, what, what does this really have to do with us? But I, I'm telling you that it has a lot to do with us, as we'll see here in a few moments. But the good thing, even for Israel, even to this day, is that that proclamation to those people back then, it wasn't a permanent eternal proclamation because of the rest of the chapter. Look at verses 10 through the rest here. In, in verse 10, he says, Yet... The time will come when Israel's people will be like, again, what? The sands of the seashore. So a nation destroyed, to be in a nation, they have too many people to count. He, he talks about in verse 10 how they were once not by people, what, but now they're going to be children. They're going to be called children of the living God. In verse 11, then the people of Judah and Israel will be united together. So no longer at war, but united as one. Um, then the people of, um, then they will choose one leader for themselves. Who do you think that's going to be? The Lord himself. This is what a day that will be, when the, the, the day of Jezreel, when God again will, will plant his people in the land. So that first son named Jezreel, which meant judgment, now has a completely different meaning where he says he's going to come and plant these people back in, in the land. And then you get to verse 2. It says, in that day your brother, uh, you're going to call your brothers not low, I mean, not, 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 right? What low means not, um, but, but you're going to call him loved again that day. Or, or not, that, that was the Ruhamah. Ruhamah meant lot loved. So when, when he goes on and says, and you're going to call your sisters Ruhamah, the idea is the ones that were not loved are loved again. The ones that were not my people are going to be brought back and be my people again. So what's this all talking about? At, at some point, um, all of this points to some time in the future when God is going to draw the descendants of Jacob, the nation of Israel, back into relationship with himself. And in that day, all the promises that God had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to, and to Jacob and to Moses and to David, they're all going to be fulfilled. 
And, and we can read about this in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 through 28. It says this. Give them this message said from the sovereign Lord. I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them home from their, from their own land, from the places where they have been scattered. I will unify them into one nation on the mountains of Israel. One king will rule them all. No longer will they be divided into two nations or into two kingdoms. They will never again pollute themselves with their idols and, and vile images and, for, and rebellion. For I will save them from their sinful apostasy. I will cleanse them. And then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be their king and they will have only one shepherd. They will obey my regulations and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob and, and the, the land where their ancestors lived. They and their children and their grandchildren after them will live there forever, generation after generation, and my servant David will be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give them their land and increase their numbers, and I will put my temple among them forever. I will make my home among them. I will be their God. They will be my people, and while my temple is among them forever, the nations will know that I am the Lord who makes Israel holy. I mean, this is coming for Israel one day, and it's just interesting that a nation of Israel that in 586 B.C. was destroyed what, 1,500, 2,500 years later, or whatever that is, back in the 1960s, or whatever it was, they became a nation again. The Bible is true, folks. God still has a covenant with these people. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, it talks about how there's going to be 144,000 young men chosen and from each of these tribes of Israel. It's going to be more than 144,000, because that's just talking about the men, not including the women and the children and everything else, right? And so this is a, a promise. So this destruction that came to Israel at one point, there's going to be a day when God restores them, not to their former glory, but to a place that they had never even seen before. This is coming. Now, as for the rest of Hosea's story, Gomer, and so in, 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 uh, in Hosea chapter 2, it gives this picture of Israel leaving God behind, right? And so this is actually a picture of what Hosea did to, what Gomer did to Hosea, or rather, right? And so um, Gomer had left her husband, went back to prostitution, did some evil things, but you get to Hosea chapter 3 and just read, listen to what this says. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again. And even though she commits adultery with another lover, this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. I mean, it's just cool, isn't it? So there's this, this wife that had gone and committed adultery on her husband. God says, go get her because I don't, want, I don't want them just to picture me as a God of judgment. I also want them to picture me as a God of redemption and, and a God who will bring them back if they will simply come back in repentance. And, and so it goes on to say that uh, he bought her back for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. And, and that, that total number would have been about 30 pieces of silver that he bought her back for, which was, interestingly enough, the price of a slave. It's an interesting number because that's what uh, Judas sold Jesus out for was also 30 pieces of silver. And what did Jesus come as? A slave. He said, that's what he says. I have come as a slave. I have come as a servant, right? It's just kind of an interesting number. So, 
in here, it, it talks about how the, this picture of God redeeming his people, God bringing them back, right? So, so verse 4 talks about in chapter 3, this shows that Israel will go a long time without having a king or a prince, without sacrifice, sacred um, pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness, And so just like Gomer is used as a picture, um, as a promise to the people that um, that God would restore them, and God would, just like, so so Hosea goes and he pays this price to, to bring his bride back to himself, right? God did the exact same thing through Jesus for his people, and guess for who else? Us. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, and it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which loses their value. It was paid with the precious blood of Christ, a sinless, spotless lamb of God. And so there's a, there's a picture of redemption here, right? And so there's the, the gospel is like all over this thing. Because this picture of this story, you have, right, you have Hosea, Picture him as God. You have Gomer. Picture them as the people, right? And so what's interesting about the New Testament is this. As we as the church, as Christians, also have the exact same picture imagery with Christ. And this is why this story is so applicable to us today, right? So in the New Testament, I want to consider for a moment our relationship with Jesus, so in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 2, it tells us that, that Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he says that, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, which was Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, it gives this picture imagery of a man and a wife. It says, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, the two are united as one. This is a great mystery, but it illustrates the way that Christ and the church are one. So when a person gives their heart to Christ, they get saved. Jesus comes in, right? You become part of the church, not grace fellowship church, but the, the global church of God, the, the body of Christ, essentially, right? And there's the same picture, just like Israel was with God, we as the church are with Christ. Christ as the husband, we as the church, we as Christians as the bride. And so this story really has a ton of application for our lives, if that is true, and I believe it's true because the Bible says so, right? And so since that's true, as we think about this relationship with the Lord, you think maybe we should be devoted to God? To Christ our Savior? We should be faithful to Him. We should seek to honor Him. We should do all that we can to show Him our love and, and our affection. We should, what, obey His commandments? Because John 14, 50 says, If you love me, obey my commandments. Romans 12, 9 tells us to let love we without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So if we want to love the Lord, we need to do it with our lives, with our mouth, with our attitudes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 tells us we were bought at a high price. We need to honor the Lord with our body, right? And so that's one application to this story. That there's a personal application that we have a husband who is Christ that paid an incredible price for our redemption, and we need to live for him. We need to serve him. We need to honor him. We need to respect him. We need to revere him, just like a, a, a good spouse would do to her husband, right? And so this is kind of this, this one picture, but there's also a, another picture to this story that I believe is incredibly relevant for today. Now, Consider the dangerous situation that we are in right now. And I don't mean the wars that are going on 
over in Europe. I'm talking about the war that is happening right now in our own nation. What were the main reasons that God declared his judgment on Israel? Well, their political leaders were evil. Why? Because they turned their backs on God. Who put them there? The people put them there. Their religious leaders were corrupt. They neglected to do, to do their job. They didn't teach the people about God because it's the people had a lack of knowledge and they did evil. They were rich. They were powerful. Their military was great and they were comfortable. Does that sound very familiar to you? You know, think about the situation we're in right now. And this, this, this sermon is not going political, I promise you. But just think about the situation that we're in right now as a nation compared to what we just read and the story that we just looked at. Think about we are at where we're at as a country. So one of the issues with Israel is they had political leaders, these kings that were propagating incredible evils. And they were there because the people put them there. You know, in the last, it, for sure, 60 years, it's not just the current administration that has problems. This goes back a long time. And in, in the last 60 years or so, our government has completely revo- removed God from our courts, from our schools, from the entire government. They promote teachings in schools instead of teaching about God. They, they teach that we are an evolution, evolutionary byproduct of animals. They promote some of the greatest evils this world has ever seen. Our nation does. They, they've tried to destroy families by taking the God-given authority that is given to parents away from parents and giving it to themselves. They try to indoctrinate the minds of people with anti-God propaganda. I mean, think about the stuff that's going on in our schools. From preschool on, our kids are, are taught things that are just wrong. That a boy that can be a girl, that a girl can be a boy, that, being, that homosexuality is normal and you should just try it and figure out what you are, that you, know, you can be what you I mean, It's just, it's indoctrination. Because all of those things, the Bible says, are evil. There's an agenda right now to turn people against each other, teaching people to define one another by the color of their skin. Thought that went away years ago, but anymore, we're, we're just, it's just, it's incredible. The list goes on and on and on. Who put them there? Statistically, to this day, it says that 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. If that be, and it, was, and it's, it was more 60 years ago, but t- today, 70%. So if 70% claim to be Christian, how in the world do we have political leaders in office that have done so much evil? One question to think about. Then there's the religious leaders, churches, pastors. You're hard-pressed, and I don't say this to be critical, it's just a reality. You're you're hard-pressed to find a church that actually teaches the Bible as true. As, in a, as, as complete truth, without error, 
that is authoritative in the life of people. You're hard-pressed to find it. Instead, churches everywhere are teaching that God's Word is not authoritative, that it changes, that you can define it by the culture and what's going on. And because of that, churches everywhere have completely turned away from God, teach things in a way that says what God's Word defines as evil and wrong and sin. They say, go ahead and enjoy it. It's incredible. Because of that, People in this nation have, in a lot of ways, turned away from from the Lord. Even though today, 70% of the people in America claim to be professing Christians. 13% of Americans um, attend, according to an Arizona Christian University study, 13% of Americans attend what's known as an evangelical church, which teaches the Bible as without error and 100% authoritative true word of God. How, however, of the 13% of Americans that actually go to an evangelical church, only 21% of those people, according to that study, actually have a biblical worldview. Meaning, the worldview is this. The worldview is a set of basic beliefs, assumptions, and values that arise from a narrative about the world um, and produces individual and group actions that shape human culture. Um, this definition of worldview can be broken down into three parts. Basic beliefs, a master story, and action. And so, only 13% of Americans, of the 70% at this state, right? Only 13% of them that actually go to a church that actually teaches the Bible as truth. And of that 13%, only 21% actually look at the Bible and say, yeah, I'm going to follow it. You think that maybe that's a problem? 21% of America is considered Catholic, and only 1% of Catholics, they say, hold a biblical worldview. 8% go to mainline churches, and only 8% of them hold a biblical worldview. That's bad. Of those people, 36% of Christians say they read the Bible on a daily basis. 63% read at least once a week, which is good. 12% read it once or twice a month. 7% several times a year. 18% never at all. So people aren't doing it on their own and say, well, at least they're getting to that church. Well, at least the, maybe, maybe at least the churches that are actually teaching the Word of God, they're getting there, but except for the also have statistics that say only about 55 to 60 percent of people actually attend church on a regular basis, where a huge percent of the percentage of them never attend at all. Now, why do I say all these things? And I really don't say all these things to be a Debbie Downer. I say all these things because... It's important that we get this because if you look around at our society, if you look around at what's going on in our nation, friends, if you don't believe that God's judgment is coming at some point, then y'all better open your eyes. The Bible tells us that God makes nations rise and God causes nations to fall. As Hosea 4, 6, my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. We have an entire nation of people that claim to be Christian that have no clue what it means to be a Christian because they have, they've never been taught the Bible. They don't get in the Bible and read it. And so they're living a lives with a worldview that they're serving God. And because these people of Israel thought they were serving God and they couldn't have been farther away from them. And because of their actions, God said judgment is coming. And friends, judgment will come to this nation if something doesn't change. However, here is the good news as I close. 
Israel's proclamation came 20 years before it happened. And if God would turn and not judge Nineveh for their sins because they turned in faith to the Lord, I guarantee you he'll do the same thing for us as a nation as well. And guess who that starts with? If you know, if you raise your hand because that's you and me. It starts with us. We have to be the ones that are the ones promoting change. Um, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, it says this, If my people, my people, God's people, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will restore their land. I just want to tell you this. I think everybody I talk to says, boy, I hope we can get back to some normalcy again because our country is crazy. People are angry. Everybody hates each other. There's fighting everywhere. Our economy is going to crap. I mean, everything. You know, I mean, we all see it. So what's the answer? Get a different president? That ain't the answer. The answer is for Christians to stand up and be Christians. The answer is for us who say we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God in heaven reigns, it's for us to start living like it and acting like it and treating people like a Christian should treat people. We should be kind and generous and loving and caring so that people see the difference in us that gives us the opportunity to tell them what is different about us, right? Which is Jesus. And so as we think about these things, Let's ourselves commit fully to the Lord. Let's ourselves commit to gaining knowledge of God's Word. Let's ourselves commit to helping other people gain knowledge of God's Word. Let's ourselves commit to telling our family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors about Jesus. Let's ourselves choose to not walk in evil, but to walk in holiness and righteousness. Let us choose to be the ones that are seeking God's face in prayer, praying not only for our own lives, but for the lives of the people around us and the lives of the people in our nation and around the world, and let us who are called to be holy actually walk in holiness so that we can be the light of the world that God has called us to be. And then people, as Matthew 5, 16 says, they will see our good deeds. They will turn in faith and glorify our Father in heaven when we become the light. So friends, let's not see our nation go down the same path of judgment as Israel. Let's be a generation of change. And let that change start with us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your warnings in it. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would take it seriously, that we would see the need to rise up. And I don't, God, I don't mean rise up in the streets with as a, as, a, as a military army, God, I'm talking about rising up with character. Rising up and, and being the, the, the examples that we've been called to be. Showing people what right looks like. Showing people the difference that Christ can make in somebody's life. And through that, God, I just pray that change in this nation would start. And that it would start right here. In Stillman Valley and in Davis Junction and Monroe Center. And from here, as other... Just move out from this place, God. Let, let us be that generation of change, Lord. Father God, I just pray for, for every heart in here, Lord, that uh, whatever issues we got, God, that you would help us in them. You would help us to walk in faith, that you would help us to walk in obedience to you. And Heavenly Father, anybody in this place that ever made a decision to follow Christ, they would make that choice tonight. 
choose to, to make him their Savior. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. As we close, we're going to just go ahead and sing one more.